Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else. Even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. This is Little Atoms, a radio show about ideas and culture. With me, Neil Denny. This week... The Real Route to Liberation with Julie Bindle and her new book, Feminism for Women. Julie Bindle is a journalist, author and feminist activist who has campaigned against male violence against women and girls since the age of 17. She has written extensively on rape, domestic violence, sexually motivated murder, prostitution and trafficking, child sexual exploitation, stalking and the rise of religious fundamentalism and its harm to women and girls. She's the author of Straight Expectations, which was shortlisted for the Polari Prize and The Pimpin' of Prostitution, among other books. And today we're going to be talking about Julie's latest book, which is Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation. Julie, welcome back to Little Atoms. It's always a pleasure, Neil. Thank you for having me. I guess we should start off then by talking about how you personally define feminism in this book. Well, I did actually think about how really it was my duty and imperative to give my own definition of feminism, because, of course, everyone can disagree with it and they can have their own definition of feminism that they adhere to. But we've had so much we've had so many definitions that are bastardized that are anything but feminism, which is why I decided to call the book Feminism for Women, because some of the definitions of feminism that pass as such today, it's more like a kind of faux feminism that benefits men way more than it does women. And I thought, well, what what is the actual root of feminism? What's its basis? Because, of course, we all do it differently. And I thought, well, it has to be the liberation of women. It can't be simply equality which I'm sure we can talk about later as to why not. It can't just be a girl power, girl boss kind of thing. It has to look at how women's lives are curtailed by what and whom and seek to overturn that, which is why I tend to use the term liberation feminism as opposed to any other definition. I don't use radical feminism. I just think it's feminism. And and yeah, we'll talk about um, the quest for equality and why that's not enough later on but before that as well you talk about how your idea of women's liberation is different from the struggle for women's rights what's the difference well if we think about the term women's rights it means that we are asking for rights that somebody has to give us and that of course would be men because 
we live under patriarchy. Men have more structural and institutional power. So we'd have to be given rights. And I want to demand our liberation. So what liberation means is instead of asking politely for a seat at the table, the right to sit down with men, the right to run companies, as do men, the right to have maternity leave. I would rather take a hammer and smash the table up and say, let's build a new table. Because what we have right now is tainted to the point where you can't ever reshape or adapt it for women. If women enter a particular institution, such as the House of Commons, or the legal profession, or anywhere, universities even, it's already, those institutions have already been set up in a way that benefits men, and that by default excludes women. So we can't ever be equal partners. Think about the House of Commons. If, um, if for example, we had 50% female parliamentarians, and often equality feminists will suggest that we, we do this and things will get better if we have 50% judges, 50% female parliamentarians. Imagine that scenario in the House of Commons at Prime Minister's Question Time. Who would be heard? Who would shout the loudest? Who would have more confidence to speak and to demand and to insist and to be unequivocable? It would be men, because women would still be in a position of underconfident, of less loud, of less than. So that 50-50 parity is never going to mean the liberation of women. We'll just be shouted over. Take us back to the 17-year-old Julie Bindle rocking up in Leeds and, and tell us about your introduction to feminism. Well, when I was 16 and living in Darlington in the northeast of England, you know, things were pretty grim. You know, Thatcher was destroying our communities. There was no work. We were from a very working-class community. We lived in council housing that was being sold off. And really, there were no opportunities, particularly for girls. And I knew that what was lined up for me was factory work. And not that there's anything wrong with factory work, but that that would be my only choice out of no choice. And marrying the boy from the estate. And of course, I had no desire for that. I had no desire for marriage or children. I was a lesbian and unable to be out and proud about that within that context. And I found myself in Leeds because I wrote to a gay publication, I think it was Gay News, that you could buy from newsstands in those days. And they actually had sections in there for people to have the opportunity to make friends. It wasn't a hookup culture. It wasn't even a dating scene that was being kind of advertised or promoted. It was, you must feel lonely, you must be isolated, because there were so few of us that were out, particularly lesbians, make friends. So I wrote to a woman who I met in York, and we became involved in a relationship. And she worked in Leeds, which is where we moved. And I knew when I walked into the radical bookstore opposite the YWCA, a hostel for women um, who couldn't afford any other housing, I knew that I'd find lesbians there because, of course, it's an alternative bookshop and this is where all the weirdos go. And definitely we were a subculture. But what I didn't expect to find were the hardcore feminists, because at that time, feminism and lesbianism was pretty indivisible within certain left-wing cultures. So along with the lesbians were these kind of very radical 
kick-ass women who were demanding that we take back the night, that we march in the streets to demand an end to male violence. We picketed the sex shops where women were being displayed like pieces of meat within these films. And crucially, what we were doing, what they were doing, and I soon joined them, was protesting about the way that the police and the media had handled the so-called Yorkshire Ripper murders. Peter Sutcliffe, who was a serial killer, who was finally caught after killing 13 women and leaving seven more for dead. And what was happening was the police were saying, well, they're just prostitutes, or, well, he's clearly a weirdo, we'll never find him. And they bungled the investigation from the very beginning on that basis. And the media, the press were running headlines such as Ripper makes first mistake, innocent victim is is found dead because, of course, they divided women up from those that were prostituted and or drinking alone at night, dating men, having sex with innocent, younger, middle-class girls. Uh, and so that that was my kind of baptism of fire. And it was a pretty, pretty heavy duty one. Being a, a lesbian is obviously always has been central to to your feminism. You just talked about the roots of that, and indeed, I you know I remember when we talked about your book Straight Expectations years ago, how we talked about how actually there's a divide in the gay world in that gay men have have often wanted to strive for a sort of almost heteronormative sort of life, you know, the ability to get married and, and adopt children, and for instance, and, you know, to be accepted into society where of, as lesbians have always been more of, you know, outliers in terms of that respect. And uh, and I wonder what that means for, like, you know, your idea of, of feminism, obviously, again, is, is shaped by that and the fact that under patriarchy, you know, marriage and the way women are expected to, to dress to please men and everything is obviously something that's alien to that world and I wonder how that you know what does that mean for I guess the vast majority of heterosexual women in terms of attracting them to feminism well when I was a young feminist and fairly new to the arguments the critiques of heterosexuality not that we were being critical well I suppose some were but not in my group we were critical of the system of heterosexuality so in other words we didn't think that it was without coercion for women. In fact, we referred to heterosexuality under patriarchy as compulsory heterosexuality. We accepted that the vast majority of women were and would probably always be heterosexual, that many, many women had great relationships with men, really enjoyed sex with men. That was that. But that we still insisted as feminists on examining how heterosexuality in the way that it's played out under patriarchy in modern times affects women, affects women's lives, what demands are made of them. And what does it mean if you live in a world where you're punished for being a lesbian? What does it mean when you say, oh, I'm not a lesbian, I envy you, which is what women used to say to me all the time, unhappy heterosexuals, they'd say, I'm really jealous. I wish I could be a lesbian. I just don't fancy women. I'm just not programmed that way. I'm just not born that way. And obviously there are some women who've never felt attraction to women and probably never will. But there are many more that have that can't admit that openly, that can't act upon it, that refuse to engage with it for themselves because they know that it's punishable. They know that it's stigmatised. And it is actually quite kind of tricky to, to come out as a lesbian, even today. So 
So what what I then started to kind of worry about and think about when we were having these discussions was how heterosexual feminists who were already quite kind of baffled at how radical we were talking about how men were to blame for rape and femicide and child sexual abuse, how men had a responsibility not to do this, how in a world without patriarchy, there would be no sexual violence. You know, women were struggling with the notion that men felt that they had a sexual entitlement, for example, to pay for sex when these women had kind of swallowed the lie that it was an inevitability that prostitution existed. So all of that was already really challenging. And then to kind of face some of the women who would be saying, okay, you are not a good feminist because you're heterosexual and you've let the side down. I thought that was appalling. It was alienating for those women, but also it was completely ignoring the fact that feminism is supposed to be for all women, whether or not those women embrace it. So the further we push women away, the more elitist we appeared to be, the more elitist we became. That meant that women would resist feminism rather than embrace it. You do talk about, you know, the idea of complete liberation of women as being something of a of a utopian ideal. But if we did achieve anything like that, you do think that, you know, more women would choose to embark on relationships with other women? I do. I think that if all of the restrictions were removed from women's sexual liberation. If women had true sexual liberation, of course more women would have lesbian relationships, however they would define that, whether they would then stick a label on themselves and say, I am a lesbian, or whether they would simply embark upon relationships with women, sexual, romantic, otherwise, because there were no restrictions and no one telling them that this was freakish, that this was twisted, that this was dangerous, or merely because the women themselves, if truly sexually liberated, would start to recognise that there's no such thing as a genetic component that makes us attracted to the same sex, that it's a combination of circumstances, of childhood experiences, perhaps, of all kinds of factors. And it's very hard. Sexual attraction is very hardwired. It's not like choosing what pasta sauce to have. But removing all of those barriers would inevitably mean that more women would feel emboldened. I mean, one example, I suppose, is if we're looking at feminism and the possibilities that feminism opens up for women is during the miners' strike, where the women that were supporting the men on the picket lines, because of course miners were men, were called the miners' wives, which in and of itself was quite demeaning. They were an appendage rather than political activists in their own right. But they, many of them, supported the peace camp Green and Common, which was full of feminists and therefore loads of lesbians. And many of those miners' wives, who were, I suppose some of them would have been happily married to men, some of them unhappily married to men, turned up at Greenham, forged friendships, got involved in sisterly struggles, and a lot of them became lesbians because the opportunity was there for them to actually really explore who they were and actually have a think about their sexuality outside of a marriage with particular expectations where men, particularly then in the 80s, ruled the roost in a very kind of, I suppose, unreconstructed 
macho way. So yeah, I do think that it would open up the possibility for more women and women would feel more free to explore sexual pleasure in a way that for many, they haven't, even since the the height reports of the 1970s that showed how unsatisfied and miserable many women were in heterosexual relationships. It's not the same today. Things have got better for women, undoubtedly, but it's still not perfect. This is Paige, the co-host of Giggly Squad, and I want to tell you about a company that I've been loving, Olive and June. Olive and June gives you everything that you need for a salon-quality manicure in one box. And if you break it down, it really comes out to $2 a manicure, which is absolutely insane. It's also so easy to get salon-worthy nails at home with Olive and June. The difference between how your nails used to look when you did them yourself and now with the Manny system is a complete game changer. The best thing about Olive and June, too, is it's a quick dry. Dries in about one minute, lasts for five days, and full coverage in up to one to two coats. Visit oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. That's oliveandjune.com slash perfectmanny20 for 20% off your first system. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Listen to Little Atoms. I'm Neil Denny. Today I'm talking to Julie Bindle and we're talking about her new book, Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation. And Julie, I want to talk about, I guess, the type of feminism that became most popular in the sort of 1990s, the girl power era. Um, they're talking about what often gets described as lean-in feminism, the sort of corporatization of feminism that, you know, to give a, a sort of ridiculous example, is it's concerned with the world's leading arms manufacturers or tobacco mm. companies having 50% women on their boards. And you talk about how... Equality, again, equality is not the same thing as liberation. Let's talk about why not. Well, you've just given a great example, uh, Neil, of the elite 2% women in, I think this kind of lean-in feminism comes from North America, where the concern is about women at the top, the glass ceiling, 
And my feminism is about women at the bottom, in the basement, drowning, struggling, desperate for a leg up. And that's what feminism should be. I'm not saying that for the elite minority of women, that feminism isn't necessary, because of course it is. And the reason why it is, although to different degrees, is because unfortunately, male violence, sexual and domestic violence, femicide and the like, is actually a great leveller in some ways. You know, all women experience the fear and or reality of some form of male violence, whether we're in the global north or south, whether we're rich or poor, whether we're indigenous or whether we're white, whether we're black, disabled. It actually differs for women depending on where we are in the world, but there is a real leveller there as well. So rape is something that women do fear and experience at alarming rates. But equality feminism has always taken a standard of woman. It is the salaried person who is usually heterosexual, certainly with children, because much focus goes on maternity benefits, maternity leave. They look at the kind of feminism that can get women into boardrooms, into politics, into the law. And that's a very, very middle class feminism. Yeah, these women are almost certainly white as well, we should say. Absolutely. They are almost all white. When women talk about equality feminism, they have someone that they want to be equal to. Now, that person that they want to be equal to isn't a homeless black man in Chicago. It's a white man running a company in the global north. There's no two ways about that. And so who are we striving to be equal to? I don't want to be equal to a patriarch. I don't want to enter the system of power. I want the power to be dissolved and I want liberation. And equality can only come about if somebody grants you permission to be equal. For example, Billy Bragg, the um, political activist and uh, singer-songwriter, was, I think a couple of years ago, waxing lyrical on Twitter about some debate that was going on between feminists. And he was proclaiming that he understood what feminism was. And he said, can I remind everyone that feminism is about equality for all? Well, what a ridiculous statement. Because what he's actually saying is that there's this equality that can just be dished out willy-nilly and everyone ends up in the same place. Well, how can that be? How can it possibly be? There has to be a standard that we are striving to be equal to. So does that mean, for example, that women who are middle class should give their equality, as if you can slice it up, to a man who has less status in other ways than her. No, so it can't work. Feminism can't be about equality because if that's the case, what will happen is exactly what does happen. Men will start taking cases to employment tribunals, for example, to say that, I think one I cited in my book, was a man who was deeply offended that he had been asked as he worked as some kind of medic that when he was doing intimate examinations of females, girls or women, that he had to have a chaperone in the room with him, but his female partner didn't. And he thought that that was, that rendered him unequal to his female colleague. It's complete madness. Another man who went on on some kind of um, bar crawl, and I think it was International Women's Day or or something like that, he saw that one of his favourite beers was being sold to women that particular night at a pound less than it was to men. 
And he went mad, took a case against the brewery, argued that, in fact, it was discrimination against him because women had it better. And this is what happens. They're two kind of quite outlandish cases, but there are many more like that, where men will say women have too much equality, which in and of itself semantically is crazy. And men will position themselves as losing out. So if we talk about women's liberation, we look at what the problem is for women. And obviously I emphasise male violence because it's the only thing that all women across the globe are connected by. And it's a huge thing. Liberation from patriarchy will mean an end to male violence. And equality will be something that we need to worry about in terms of class, race, colonialism, ethnicity. But for women, if we're liberated from patriarchy, we'll be able to see the picture far more clearly. Yeah, I want to talk about the centrality of male violence to your career or your life, because, you know, in your very early days, it was something you experienced yourself. We can think of, you know, ways in which violence obviously is, you know, is out there in the world. But in, in the majority of cases, it's something that begins at home as well. It is. And it's so ingrained within our family life, our psyche, you know, our places of work for people within their communities, that it's almost normalised. When we hear about women dying as a result of domestic violence, for example, every um, three days a woman in the UK will die as a result of violence from a former or current male partner. And, you know, so far this year, there's 133 women have died in this way which is an extraordinary number. And if you think about documenting those deaths and think about the way that it's almost taken for granted that those women will die every year with no decrease, because, of course, we don't have proper resourcing or educational tools or deterrence for the most violent of men or the right protection for women. You know, it's actually an obscenity. And then we have sexual assault, sexual harassment, where women learn to accept it as a part of our daily lives. We're told, and this has been the case through the generations, it was the case for me growing up as a working class girl in the north of England. And it's the same for girls that are growing up today, although feminism has achieved a huge amount in terms of raising awareness and bringing in legislation, girls are still told to be careful, to look after themselves, to put their hands over their drinks in case they're spiked, to not be too fresh with a date unless she expects to have sex with him later on. If she's raped, she knows if she reports it, and it's rare that she does, that she will be questioned and scrutinised, and that it's very unlikely that her rapist will be brought to justice. You know, one example that I always use about this, because at the moment we have the lowest conviction rate for rape than we've had in a long time, from reporting through to conviction or through to the end of the process, the criminal justice process, only 1.4% of all reported rapes go to court, go to trial, and about 60% of them end in a, in a conviction which is about 0.8% of all reported rapes. So if a woman is raped or a girl is raped, it's actually more likely that she'll end up in prison as a direct or indirect result of the trauma that that assault has caused and the chaotic effects on her life than her rapist. And that's really shocking. Bearing in mind we've got good legislation, we've got 
a robust criminal justice system, albeit one that's under-resourced. And we've had decades and decades of feminism. So that is why I see it as a priority, because despite the gains of feminism, and they are huge, the morgues tell the truth. The morgues are still carrying the bodies of those women that we have been talking about since I was a 17-year-old. Those statistics on rape convictions are obviously shameful. You talk in the book about the concept of marital rape, which, you know, in a lot of countries around the world isn't even a thing. But here it is, until relatively recently, it wasn't a thing, but it's now illegal. But looking at that in particular, the the statistics for anybody being tried or convicted for, for marital rape are even lower. Yeah, and there are so many countries, as you've said, around the world where rape in marriage isn't a crime, which tells us that women are seen as the property of men. It tells us all we need to know about women's status in those countries. But also in the UK, where so many women don't know that if their husband rapes them, that they can actually report him for a crime. So many women don't know because the societal norms and the message that they get about their status of women overrides their knowledge of criminal law. And also, of course, then you've got the deterrence that's put in place to stop women from reporting husbands, partners, from reporting them for rape, because, of course, she's scared. She's scared of him and reprisals, and she knows she's not going to be protected. There aren't enough refuge spaces for women. And why should women go to refuges and leave everything behind, leave their lives, their animals, their property, their themselves behind to go and hide in an under-resourced refuge? But she's also scared of the way that she'll be viewed. The stigma of sexual violence all too often remains on women. And we need to put that stigma firmly on the shoulders of men. So there's a huge difference between the status of women in Pakistan, for example, or in some countries in South America, you know, in, in, in various states in the US where abortion has become recriminalized. And, and of course, you know, countries, for example, in Scandinavia, where women seem to enjoy better lives in some ways. Uh, as long as they're kind of moneyed and and middle class um, than women in the UK. But it's still the case that rape is endemic in every country, including Iceland, which has been ranked the best place to be a woman because of all kinds of reasons, stretching from better maternity pay, equal salaries, pensions and benefits, all the things that really only middle-class women can take advantage of. So rape in marriage for those women in Nordic countries, yes, of course, it's criminalised. Yes, of course, the police are more likely to listen to her if she reports. But will she report? What are the other barriers that stop her from reporting? And I think it's the same old, same old, which is the stigma and knowing that women are so often blamed for sexual violence rather than their perpetrators. So I've been talking to Julie Bindle. We've been talking about her new book, Feminism for Women, The Real Route to Liberation, which is out in the UK from Constable. Julie, thank you so much for sharing it with me. Thank you, Neil. It's always a pleasure to talk to you. This episode of Little Atoms was produced and presented by me, Neil Denny, edited by... Imagine the softest sheets you've ever felt. Now imagine them getting even softer over time. 
That's what you'll feel with Bowling Branch's organic cotton sheets. In a recent customer survey, 96% replied that Bowling Branch sheets get softer with every wash. Start getting your best night's sleep in these sheets that get softer and softer for years to come. Try their sheets with a 30-night guarantee. Plus, get 15% off your first order at BowlingBranch.com. Code BUTTERY. Exclusions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High-quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50% to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. Sky Redman and was first broadcast on Resonance 104.4 FM. Little Atoms is supported by 89Up and hosted by Acast. If you enjoyed the show, please do subscribe, rate us on iTunes, and even tell a friend. Thanks for listening.